said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Owen Ellis. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're here because we want to hear from you. We're here also to praise you, but, but right now we ask that through your Holy Spirit you would move these words into our hearts to tell them, to tell us what you mean for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Sermon for today, what good are good works? What good are good works? And I'd like to begin with a question. Well, what do you think of when we talk about good works? What comes to mind under the heading good works? What are you thinking about as soon as you saw that good works? Ellen. The Good Samaritan. Good. Someone else? Helping others. Helping others. Thank you, Sonia. Jesus, thank you. A good person. Doing what's right. Anyone else? Those are all good answers. It actually encapsulates and incorporates all of those things. Motive. Aha, uh-huh. that's interesting. Yes. Um, what's our motive there? Anyone else before we move on? A response to what Jesus has done for us. So, so good works, all good things, good things we do for others. Does it include keeping God's law? Can that be good works? Yes, all of those things incorporated in good works. Now, many people today actually think that they'll be saved, that they think that they'll go to heaven as long as they are good enough. It's amazing how many people say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, so based on that, I should get to heaven. You know, some think it's like a, a balancing act, uh, where as long as your good works and your, your mistakes you know, are kind of in balance, then, then you'll be all right. In fact, if you ask a Muslim, they believe that on the day of judgment, all of their good works are weighed on one side and all of their sins on the other. And as, good a, as long as their good works are heavier or greater than their sins, as long as the balance tips the right way, they'll be okay. Some verses in Scripture, if we take them on their own and don't read them in the light of the whole of Scripture, may even be understood to support that view. I told the youth I was going to share one example today. Here it is. Romans 6 verse 7, God will render to each one according to his what? According to his deeds. And what does he get according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient endurance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. We need, however, to read all the Bible in the light of the whole of Scripture. So this brings us to an important question, because if that was the only verse that I showed you, you'd go, okay, as long as I do enough good deeds, I've got eternal life. 
What does the Bible say that shows that our good works do not save us? Are you sure that we're not saved by our good works? Are you sure of that? Okay, most of us are. Maybe you're not quite sure yet. That's all right. But if that's the If that's the case, what does the Bible have to say that shows that our good works do not save us? I want you to just to take a minute to share with someone who's seated close to you as many different things you can think of that the Bible says. And it's all right if your conversation begins like this. Well, I don't know the chapter and the verse or the reference, but I think it says something about. Okay? And list as many things as you can think of that you know are somewhere in Scripture that let us know we're not saved by our works. Where you go. Share together. All right, it was good. it's good to hear a bit of a hum, and I don't want to interrupt, but this could take for quite a while if you were to start listing them all. All right, let me share four, four examples from Scripture because the Bible has plenty to say about this. First of all, our Scripture reading for this morning, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus chapter chapter 3 and verse 5, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus is speaking here. He said, many will say to me on that day, that's when he comes again, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Aren't those good works? Lord, Lord, haven't we done lots of good works? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And one more. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. These are some of the verses that I, I, I shared earlier in the year in our sermon, It's Who You Know. And in that sermon, we established that Christianity is not about what you do, but about who you know. But that wasn't the whole of the definition. Remember, there was a second part to it. Who you know will change what you do. It seems, however, that the assurance that the Bible gives us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and by Christ alone and not by works, it seems that this assurance leads some to the conclusion that our works don't matter. In other words, they say it doesn't matter what you do. The law doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. A Christian doesn't have to worry about works. They, don't even, they shouldn't even think about works. But does the Bible actually teach this? Does the Bible teach that works aren't important? Come back to our scripture reading from this morning. Verse 10. And also from our children's story. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's pretty clear God is interested in good works. In fact, I decided to look through the New Testament and see how many times we find good works referred to. 29 times. It's all positive. It's, there's nothing negative there about good works. And in fact, the original language, the Greek language, there's two different phrases that are used for good works. Both of them use the same word for works. That's the word ergon, which sounds a little bit like ergo, you know, like we get for ergonomics that has to do with the efficiency of how you work in the workplace and that. So we recognize that ergo, that work word. The first word for one of them is kalos, which means having a high standard. It indicates a positive moral quality. That's implied in the term good works. Another term for good works in the original language is agathos, ergon, good works. Agathos has to do with being good, being generous, and meeting a high standard. That's the whole idea of Good works. Now, here's three examples of those 29 times that good works are referred to. And um, let's see, who, who's got the microphone? Who's ready to read our first one for us? Thank you, Casey. Titus 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Be careful to maintain good works. Jolie, I think you've got the mic next. Titus 3.14. Okay, it says, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Thank you. And we've got one more. Another volunteer ready for the mic? Um, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 21. Thanks, Leanne. Now may the God of peace make you complete in every good work to do his will. Do good works matter to God? Yes. Do good works save us? No. No. And we need to be careful of that. So let's check our understanding so far. True or false? We are not saved by good works. That's true. True or false? God doesn't care about good works. That's true. Clearly false. I'm, 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 glad you, I'm glad you got that. I'm glad you got that. So another question to look at together. If good works do not save us, and we've established that, what good are they? Or why does God desire us to do good works? Take a moment to share with the person next to you. What, what good are good works? Why is God interested in it? What are some reasons why Christians should be interested in good works? Over to you. All right, I'd like to hear from you just briefly because this is what we're going to look at for the rest of our time together this morning. But let's see what you came up with just randomly as you discussed this. What good are good works? Yes. So good works reveal God's character. Mm. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Any, anyone else before we move on? Yes. 
So it's it's got something to do with our relationship with Christ here again, hasn't it? It kind of can grow our relationship with Christ. We might come to that again. And I don't want to cut anyone off if you had something you wanted to share. Thank you. Helps us to grow. Anna, helps make the world a better place. Okay? Helps make our communities an easier place to live, including our church community as well. Okay? I'd like to um, take a look at We're going to touch on some of the things you've shared already as we look at um, five reasons this morning or five answers to the question, what good are good works? What good are good works? And we're going to start by looking at the scripture in Matthew 5.16. Who's our reader for Matthew 5.16? I'll put it up on the screen for you. And um, thank you. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So what do our good works achieve in this context? They glorify our Father in heaven. They show, as Phil mentioned, the character of our Father in heaven. Now, now what effect will that have on people as we lift up Jesus, as we lift up God's love, what effect does that have on others? They draw to him. Okay, so, so now there's an important point here. Do my good works save me? No, but my good works can be important when it comes to the salvation of others. I like the way Ellen White put it. She said, No other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of an unselfish life. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. The way we live can help to lead to the salvation of others as it draws them to Christ. So our good works are important for the salvation of others. We're going to take a look now at um, James chapter 2 for a second reason. James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Oh, we're just passing the microphone around here. Okay. Thank you. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed, and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also by itself faith thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. It is dead. It is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Some preachers will say, just believe. That's all that matters. Just believe. But James doesn't say, just believe and don't worry about the work stuff. He seems to be saying to us that the absence of good works reveals that your faith is what? Dead. And a dead faith, what sort of faith is a dead faith? Is dead faith saving faith? There's a connection here. In fact, it's not really faith at all. James might say to us today, I know that we are saved by who we know and by our relationship with God. 
And James never undermines that. But if that relationship doesn't produce good works, then James would doubt the relationship if, it really, if we really do know Christ. So we can say that our good works reveal and to ourselves the quality of our relationship with God or the quality of our faith. We're not saying that if we're not perfect, we don't have faith. No, but if our life is devoid of good works and doing things for God and we don't care about those things, then maybe we haven't met Jesus the way we need to. You know, um, there's, there's someone in, in the secular world, he's not even a Christian, who, who I think understands the important connection between faith and works. Does anyone recognize this face? This is Jordan Peterson. Who, who of you have heard of him? Maybe yes, a couple of you, couple of you have. Jordan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist. He's a professor of psychology in Canada, the University of Toronto. He's um, he's not a Christian, but he upholds so much of the Judeo-Christian faith, even using the Bible as a textbook for teaching lessons about life. Uh, that um, he is often asked the question if he believes in God. And it's interesting to watch him as he responds to this question. Here's one of his responses. He said, to believe, to believe in a Christian sense, to actually claim that you believe, means that you live it out fully. And that's an unbearable task in some sense. That's his interpretation there. He sees it as being a heavy thing to say that you believe. Continuing, he says, I try to act as if God exists because God only knows what you'd be if you truly believed. Does Peterson believe that belief and action are connected? He really does. In fact, he says, look, I know that your belief is about what you think and what you say, but he says mostly, and this is as a clinical psychologist, he says, if I see what you do, then I'll know what you really believe. If you were capable, he says, of believing, it would be a transfiguring event, a truly transfiguring event. He's not a Christian. But I think he understands what James is saying. True belief means we, we live differently, very differently. Not just about what we say or think, but our actions ultimately reveal our belief. This is in line with what Paul was saying when he wrote to Titus, Titus 1.15. Who's our next reader? Thank you. They profess to know God. But in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. It's possible to say that we believe in God, to say that we know him, but for our works to actually deny him in return. So good works reveal the quality of our relationship with God or the quality of our faith. Let's look at another thing about good works. Romans 12, we're looking at. Romans 12, 10 to 13, and verse 18. Who's our next reader? Thank you. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, 
not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Mm. There's quite a list here of what Paul calls us to do, but notice he sums it up. As much as you can, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So good works actually help us to live peacefully together. They make us pleasant and easy people to live with. Someone mentioned that, didn't they? Our world, our society is a better place. It's an easier place to live in when we participate in good works. So another reason for good works. Let's move to Colossians chapter 1 for a further reason. Colossians 1 and verse 10. Thank you, Sharon. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There seems to be a connection here between good works and the knowledge of God. Good works and the knowledge of God. Growing in our relationship with God. Someone also mentioned, do you know, everything here that I've got to share with you just came up um, from your comments already. You know, um, works like prayer, Bible study, taking care of my body temple, is that a work? Yeah, that's good works too. Being a good steward, being involved in church worship, communal worship together, all of those things help to support my relationship with Christ. Also, as was mentioned, when we work with him, it grows our relationship with him, working together. So good works help us grow in our relationship with Christ. You know, I, I, I think in, in this way, it's often as, as we set out to follow Christ's example that we are so often humbled by the fact that it's not natural for us to do so. If we really look at it, and someone mentioned motive before, and if we examine our motives sometimes and we go, I'm really struggling to do this in a Christ-like way, but that's not a bad thing because it reminds me of my need for Christ. And the more often I'm reminded of my need for Christ and I go to him, what does that do to my relationship? The relationship continues to grow. We have this promise in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. It's really important to remember our works don't save us. Our works are not to be done in our own strength. They are so important, but God gives us this promise. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for what? For every good work. Who provides for us so that we can do the good works? God. That's why they are to his glory, not to mine. To his glory and not to mine. A couple more verses to go. We find the fifth answer in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. And who's our next reader? Thanks, Georgia. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think um, you hinted at that earlier on. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And if we go on to Luke chapter 6, we find the same kind of principle. Thanks, Phil. To you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. With all the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. There's a blessing when we give. There's a blessing that comes back to us when we do good works. That's the way God operates. That's the way he designed the world. Good works bring us a deep satisfaction as we experience God's way of living. Now, it was observed earlier on that this is not just a Christian principle. It's not just a biblical principle, but others recognize the truth of some of this at least. Um, In one study in the United States, researchers found that volunteering once a week increased people's happiness as much as moving from a personal annual income of less than 20000 a year to more than seventy-five, from, from going from below the poverty line to a respectable income, increased people's happiness just as much as other people who chose to start volunteering once a week. Does good works increase our happiness? Yes, it does. Here's some more evidence. Well, what about money? You say, well, those people, you know, they got happy from getting more money. Does having more money to spend also help me to be happier? Well, researchers found that spending money did cause a long-term spike in happiness only when people spent it on someone else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Researchers from the University of North Carolina, they found that an altruistic orientation, you know, an orientation of giving to others, upregulates important genes involved in boosting our immune system. In other words, just by doing good for others can strengthen our immune system and we end up being physically healthier and happier. You know, they used to say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. We could rewrite that and say a good deed a day keeps the doctor away. It's, um, it's the way God designed it, really. It's the way he set this world in motion. It's the way he operates. The Apostle Paul understood this. He understood that good works are good for so many reasons. And he understood that good works actually help us to feel more fulfilled people. And I believe that's why he gave this admonition in his letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. Thank you. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works and forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Paul said, I want you to stir up love and good works. You know, um, There's lots of things we can stir up, right? 
Lots of things that we can stir up. But Paul said, I want you to consider how you can stir up love and good works. And as we close this morning, I want to leave us with this question. What can I do? What can you do to stir up, to encourage love and good works? Perhaps it's time for us to just be a little bit more mindful and and say, you know, this week I'm going to purposefully think of others each day and just do something little. Maybe there's something that you've seen needs doing and you've just walked past it. Maybe it's time to say, you know, why don't I just do that? Why don't I just have a go at that? Whatever it is. Or maybe it's time to say to another person, and this is one way we can stir up others, hey, why don't you come with me as we go and do this together? As we go and do this good work, whatever it is, together, as we encourage one another. It's the way God lives It's what he encourages us to do. There's many benefits to us, but it's what we do as saved people, but never in order to be saved. God bless you as you consider how to stir up love and good works this week in your life and in your home. This message was made available by the Barrel Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit barreladventist.church.
That was Go Light Your World by Fountain View Academy. Before that, they also sang Saved by Grace. Coming up next, Marlita Fong will be singing This Day from her album Pray On. This day is fragile, soon it will end, and once it has vanished, it will not come again. So let us love with a love cool and strong before this day. Coming up next, Eastward Music Camp will be singing The Love of God.
to our series, You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonta, for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled, The Key to Peace of Mind. Our first story today happened in 1952. So is an experience that has encouraged me over the years to know that I'm not alone and that God does help when I need Him. I was in my final year of teacher training and it was that time of the year when we students were assigned to schools to undertake several weeks of practical school experience. Excitement mounted as we crowded around the notice board where the list of schools where we were to teach was posted. Soon I was able to get close enough to read the small print. Yes, there was my name, Alan Sonter, and the school was Hamilton. The Hamilton SDA School was in a suburb of Newcastle, New South Wales, and I had never been there before, so the experience promised to be an interesting one. I arrived at the school early on the first day to be met by the jovial headmaster, Oliver Ferris. Oliver was an outgoing, friendly fellow who seemed to know everything about all his students. It wasn't a large school, only four teachers if I remember correctly, but to a wide-eyed youngster like me, it seemed to be really something great, and Oliver Ferris seemed a giant of a man. We hit it off well right from the start, and he assigned me to teach his own class. Of course, I taught only a few lessons at first and spent a good deal of time watching Oliver at work. I marvelled at the way he seemed to have the knack of making things so simple for his students and he could say just the right thing to ensure that his charges paid attention. They just ate out of his hand, as the saying goes. Well, the first week passed all too quickly and I was enjoying the experience immensely. I would usually stay at the school as late as possible preparing lessons for the following day and would be the first at school in the morning. So one day Oliver suggested that I keep his set of keys so that I could stay as late as I wished and come as early as I wished in the morning. I felt that Oliver was giving me quite a responsibility as I would have to make sure that the school was left properly locked up each evening. I felt happy that he would trust me like that and accepted the offer gratefully. I pocketed the bunch of keys with the determination that his trust in me would be well placed. And so things went well for several days. During the lunch breaks each day, I would go out into the playground and join the students at play. At one end of the playground, there were a few pieces of gym equipment, and I occasionally used this equipment with the older students. One day, I was on the parallel bars, which were a bit old and shaky, and attempted to do a handstand. To my horror, the bars moved apart just enough to send me plummeting to the ground head first. It might well have been the last thing I ever did, but beneath the bars was a thick layer of sand, which cushioned my fall, so that I survived with nothing more than a very sore neck. Needless to say, I kept off those bars after that and nursed my neck during the afternoon. After school was out for the day, 
I busied myself with preparations for the next day's classes while Oliver went to his office to attend to some of his many administrative duties. Before long, most of the students had left and the other teachers left in the late afternoon. Eventually, Oliver put his head through the door and said, Well, I'm going now, Alan. I'll see you in the morning. I acknowledged his greeting and went on with my work, hardly noticing the passing of time until I had to switch on the lights. All at once I realised how late it was. So I finished up what I was doing and packed up to leave. As I shut the classroom door, I reached into my right trouser pocket for the key to lock up and was shocked to find the bunch of keys wasn't there. With mounting anxiety, I searched through all my pockets until I was forced to the sickening conclusion that I had lost the headmaster's keys. Here I was, all alone in the school, with no one to turn to, and the keys had simply vanished. I couldn't go home and leave the school unlocked, and it was rapidly becoming dark. What was I to do? Perhaps the worst thing about the situation was that I had no idea where the keys might have gone. And without them, I didn't know how I was going to face Oliver Ferris the next day. An examination of my pocket showed no hole that the keys could have fallen through. I prided myself on the fact that I never lost keys. So not only did I fear that Oliver's faith in me would be shaken, but my faith in myself was damaged too. I'd been brought up a Christian, but until that time I couldn't recall God actually giving me anything I had asked for in prayer. But now I was really desperate, and I turned to God for help with a greater sense of need than I had ever felt before. Lord, I agonised, I really need your help. Please show me where those keys are. Suddenly the thought popped into my mind. Perhaps the keys dropped out of my pocket when I fell off the parallel bars. I'd better go and look there. So off I went across the playground. But then two problems became apparent. One, it was becoming quite dark and I had no torch. And two, there was a thick bed of sand under the bars and the students in their play had been churning it up after I had been there during the lunch break. No matter... I kept on going anyway, and when I reached the bars, I bent down in the semi-darkness and dug my hand into the sand. Imagine my amazement as within a second or two, my fingers closed around the bundle of keys. I hadn't searched around over a large area, but there were the keys, just a few centimetres below the surface. I can hardly describe the sense of relief that came over me followed immediately by a surge of gratitude to God for hearing and answering my prayer in such a remarkable manner. Thank you, Lord, I whispered. Thank you, thank you. Gratefully clutching the keys, I almost flew back over the playground to the school, where I soon had the building locked up, and within a few minutes, I was on my way home, still marvelling at the amazing answer to prayer that I had just experienced. For the first time in my life, I really understood that the key to peace of mind was in knowing that I was not alone and that God was with me, watching over me.
About 30 years ago, I was reminded of the experience I have just told you by another which happened at Pacific Adventist College, now Pacific Adventist University, just out of Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. When faculty members were away over the year-end vacation, they sometimes asked students who were working on campus during the vacation to look after their homes for them. On this particular occasion, the chairman of the theology department had gone overseas for a few weeks and left a young Solomon Island education student named Wiki to look after his home. Wiki was working on campus to earn tuition fees and was given the key of the house so he could go in as needed. One day, Wiki came to my office, very agitated. You know, I'm looking after Pastor Tolliter's house while he's away, he began. Well, today I lost his key in the lake. I've looked everywhere, but I can't find it. It was in my pocket while I was cleaning water lilies out of the lake over on the other side of the campus. What can I do? Now I can't get in to look after the house. And what will Pastor Tolliter say when he comes back and finds the key is gone? Poor Wiki appeared so dejected as he looked pleadingly at me. I should explain that we had a problem with a type of wild water lily which multiplied rapidly and covered the surface of our three campus lakes, threatening to choke out the beautiful large water lilies we had planted. So every few months, campus workers would drag the masses of vegetation out of the water and cart it away. Wiki had been doing this work when the key must have fallen from his pocket into the water. As I looked at Wiki's unhappy face, my mind flashed back over the years to that day at the Hamilton School. You surely seem to have a problem, I responded. But don't worry, I'm sure God can help you find the key if you ask him. Let's kneel down right here and ask him to help you find that key. So we knelt down in my office and asked God's help for Wiki's problem. Now don't worry about it anymore, I told Wiki. If God wants you to have that key again, you can be sure that you'll have it. Just leave it with him. In my busy program over the next day or two, the matter of Wiki's lost key was almost forgotten until a knock came on my door. There stood Wiki with a big beaming smile on his face. I found it, he almost shouted in his excitement. I was loading the heap of water lilies into the trailer when I saw something shining in the sun. When I looked closely, I saw that it was the key. And here it is, he held up the key. Now, in case you think that was no big deal, I should tell you that that lake covers probably a hectare and there were tons of water lily trash heaped around the edges of the lake. On top of that, the key was lost in the water, and the probability of its being caught up in the trash and dragged to shore was very small indeed. But here was the key, dragged ashore and placed right where it would be seen in among the mass of water lily plants. Talk about a needle in a haystack. Finding that would be a piece of cake compared with finding Wiki's key, humanly speaking. That's great, I replied. So God did answer our prayer, and you have your key again. Now when God answers like that, we must remember to thank him. So let's do that now. We knelt there in the office again and thanked God for showing Wiki where the key was. Wiki had learned an important lesson 
The key to peace of mind is trusting God. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abinaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02 4973 3456. May God bless you and remember, you are not alone. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.